Do you find it difficult to say neoliberalism, James? I find it horribly difficult to say neoliberalism. It's one of my least favourite words to say. If there was some other way to say it, then we'd say that, but we can't. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. And somehow people began to look to the state to solve their problems rather than solving them themselves. If there was another way, some easier way, I would take it. But there is no alternative. We've had a bit of an idea, haven't we? Yes, yes, we have. Uh, um, yes, yeah, something we've not done before. So it's six-parter. That's 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 been decided. Six-parter about what, James? About neoliberalism. About a, a history and a guide to neoliberalism for okay. beginners. We're going to call it the beginner's guide to neoliberalism. Um, for those who don't know, James, do you want to? Tell everybody who you are. Yes, uh, I'm James Meadway. I'm an economist. I work at the New Economics Foundation, which is a an independent think tank based in London. Wonderful. You sound very qualified. Thank you. And Kirsty, who are you? I am Kirsty Styles. I am a journalist, and uh, for uh, everybody out there, I'm the person asking the stupid questions, so they don't have to. On the weekly economics podcast, uh, which is what this broadcast is uh, is a spin off from, right? Yes, that's it. With the stars. With stars. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so you're going to take us through the history of neoliberalism? Uh, yes, step by step, from its its sordid beginnings all the way through to its its triumphant uh, arrival and the scene, okay, and then well, beyond. Wait, even. Wait, whoa! Don't spoil the story. And uh, we go from when? To we where? go from we go from the 1930s. We go from the the terrible beginnings of neoliberalism to its its kind of terrible uh, triumphant arrival in government in the 70s, and then a bit beyond that as well. Okay, so and this gets where we get to the exciting bit where we might not need to keep neoliberalism forever. Yes, yes, that's exactly what the the final part is about. Okay, wonderful. People can just just tuck in from here, right? This is yes, going to be an exciting ride. It'll be a seamless edit of everything we've said for the last six weeks all put together in one package. You can listen to it from one end to the other and you'll come away uh, thoroughly informed. You sound excited as well. I am excited. Here we go. I went on a date um, in an inflatable kayak. Whose idea was the inflatable kayak date? Um, A wild cartoonist. Oh, okay. Has he done this before, do you think? It's not going to it was actually brand new. Yeah? Yeah. A brand new inflatable hire. Uh, inflatable hire. <laughs> yeah, it took me on a date paddling down the river <laughs> on a blow up near Liberal Doll. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. Episode two is called The House That Hayek Built, and so I'll be talking to James Meadway about the people behind neoliberalism and how they made it a mainstream idea. The eventual deciding factor in the war after the war came from a very unlikely source. He was an unknown. We thought we'd spend a bit of time chatting about the first meeting of the Mount Pelerin Society. His name was Friedrich A. Hayek. So that it was a very memorable meeting indeed. And it, uh, it was a remarkable collection. You have to give Friedrich Hayek full credit. Those few of us who believed in freedom and free markets and minimum government were regarded as nuts. Our second guest 
is the Nobel laureate Friedrich von Hayek. To make making people equal a goal of governmental policy would force government to treat people very unequally indeed. Okay, James, so in the last of our A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism episodes, we talked a bit about how these ideas have become the dominant way of organising capitalism since about the late 70s. In this episode, we're going to delve into a little bit more of the story. Um, But first, can you just remind our listeners what we mean by neoliberalism and, and why it's actually different to capitalism? Well, what we're talking about here is is the rules of the game of capitalism, that you, you can kind of play the same game but change the rules over time. If you think about, uh, well, rugby, where I'm from, they play rugby league. This is a different set of rules to playing rugby union like you get down in the south. It's the same game, but you change the rules around and things uh, end up working out quite differently. This is exactly what you get with neoliberalism. There are other rules you could have to run capitalism. The rules that we have are neoliberal and stress privatisation, free markets and uh, allowing corporations and the wealthy, you know, the, the space to do their thing as far as possible. My dad will be very pleased about that hat tilt to rugby league. Thank you. So you mentioned a bit in the last episode about the thinkers behind neoliberalism and one of those was Friedrich von Hayek. Who was he and why did he start looking into these things? Well, Friedrich von Hayek is, is, is hugely influential. I mean, probably the, the decisive figure in the, in the history of neoliberal thought. He's a, an Austrian economist. He's an economist from Austria, literally in, in this case, who um, reacted to the, the crisis of the 1930s, the sort of disintegration of capitalism, the collapse of, of global trade, the rise of very, very state interventionist uh, governments, the New Deal in America, uh, fascism potentially in Germany and Europe. And his, his reaction to this is to try and think about how you might get the free market capitalism or at least its values still to function in a world where the state was having to intervene on a large scale. So it's like, how do you deal with the fact that the old version of liberal capitalism that you had particularly before the First World War with minimal state intervention, little interference uh, from democratic and socialist parties in how markets operate, how do you reconfigure the values of that system, the liberal values of free trade and all the rest of it, so it functions in a world where the state is big and you have to deal with lots and lots of competing demands and that's really his way of thinking about things and how you might kind of repurpose the old version of liberalism turn it into this new neoliberalism and that's how you might run capitalism better in his view how big is this ship there are 24 decks almost 700 meters long It took me six months to scrounge up enough titanium just to build a four-meter cockpit. How much did this thing cost? Money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? The economics of the future is somewhat different. My name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast, where this week I'm joined by fellow podcast star Aaron Bastani, who's co-founder of Navara Media, an independent media organisation where we're talking about fully automated luxury communism. I think the day is not too far off at all when we're going to have androids doing a lot of the work that we are doing right now. People are racing against the machine, and many of them are losing that race. We're going to see more and more things that look like science fiction, and fewer and fewer things that look like jobs. We're fortunate enough to be joined by Yanis Varoufakis, former finance minister for Greece. Would it be fair to say then that your position is one of fully automated luxury communism? Star Trek. 
I know this is all very confusing to you, so I'll attempt to explain. Give me a martini straight up with uh, two olives. I might just get to like this place. A lot has changed in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We've eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. <laughs> So hello, Aaron. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. Thanks for having me. So today is the first of two episodes that we're doing on the economics of the future and how technologies will play a part in that. Uh, specifically, we're talking to you about fully automated luxury communism, uh, which you've written and spoken about quite a lot. It's a bit of a mouthful, as I've just indicated. Can you sum up as quickly as possible what it means, uh, preferably in 10 words or less, in language that humans, as well as robots, would understand? Well, I think I can do it in just under 10. I can do it in nine. Quite briefly, technology has changed everything. Politics needs to catch up. And that's it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's as clear as clear as glass. <laughs> it's hard to imagine quite what this must have been like to be there with this huge soaring inequality, massive levels of poverty. I mean, you had nearly two million people leaving the country. You know, leaving to go and try and make uh, make their make their lives in 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 Europe, in the USA, and all sorts of places. So I mean, it was it was really serious, and lots of people gave up hope at that time. Lots of people left the country, um, and there was a feeling that they'd tried everything. So there was kind of this despondency, as as we heard earlier, a little bit like um, like like Ecuador was becoming a failed state almost. The the, the common feeling of Ecuadorian society at large was. Uh, fuera uh, todos, which means everybody out, all the politicians out. It was very anarchical in that sense. So how did they get out of this position of what sounds like, you know, total despair? Well, the biggest name in Ecuadorian politics of the last decade is an economist called Rafael Correa. Una nueva historia comenzado. Una historia de dignidad, de soberanía, de justicia. Correa was the finance minister in the previous government and he'd come out with a bunch of populist policies but he really came into the public eye when he was negotiating with the IMF and he quite famously came out and uh, and said that the IMF was trying to take away the sovereignty of the Ecuadorian state and so he resigned his position and he was very quickly kind of seen as a bit of a leader in terms of uh, standing up to the economic forces that had caused all this chaos and very quickly that kind of movement started to snowball and uh, a bunch of other kind of geeky progressive economists started to get wrapped up in this whole thing and it became a bit of a movement quite quickly okay i mean i love a good geek who are these economist nerds so they're heterodox or otherwise known as progressive economists and all those people who had emigrated to the UK and to Spain and all sorts of other places, who'd gone and studied economics in a lot of cases, came back to Ecuador and they surrounded and, and formed part of this uh, government. And actually, Andres uh, Arauz, who we talked about before, is uh, is kind of interesting because he's almost the same age as you and I, right? He's kind of about 30. He's this young, progressive politician. And, and, and he's a heterodox economist. This government is basically an economist's government and it happens that most of us are heterodox economists. I don't know if you can find so many heterodox economists in one government. Mm-hmm. 
So how did these economist nerds go on to win an election? I'm sure they were all, you know, super smart. But how did they make themselves electable? There was political chaos, a financial crisis. And after Korea left the government in protest to the government sort of negotiating with the IMF, um, he won huge popular support. So off the back of that, he formed Alianza País, which is the governing body at the moment and is made up of social movements and political forces in Ecuador. And within a year, won the national election with over 56% um, of the vote. So the mood of the country completely changed. And you really heard this from everyone, this kind of monumental moment when they uh, when they got elected. It was like a kind of, uh, the way people talked about it, it was like a being able to breathe again almost. What's more important than the day of, of the elect- electoral victory was the day after. Here in Ecuador we have elections on Sundays. And that Monday I clearly remember people going to work and all of a sudden the entire city didn't beep. Like here in Ecuador, uh, and when there's traffic, people are frustrated, they start honking their, their horns and beeping and beep, beep, and there's lots of noise in the street. And that Monday, nobody, nobody honked their horns. Nobody beeped. And, and, and during the traffic, uh, people would say, no, please go ahead, go ahead. And uh, they would yield uh, to, other, to other vehicles. And for me, that was such, a, such an extraordinary feeling. It was like everybody's mood all of a sudden changed from one day to the, to the next. And people, everybody, opposition, the right wing, everybody knew that Ecuador was going to change, that it was serious this time. No me defrauden ustedes. Hasta la victoria siempre, queridos hermanos y hermanas.